I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. In this week's episode of The Trade Guys, Bill and Scott talk all things climate, from proposed amendments to the EU CBAM to USMCA auto rules of origin and underlying causes of global food prices. All that and more on this week's episode. Well, welcome everybody to The Trade Guys. This is Bill, and I want to introduce uh, not an entirely new, but a new producer who's done it before, but is coming back, and that's Emily Benson, who is the research fellow here at the Scholl Chair and is responsible for an awful lot of the written product that comes out of the Scholl Chair, all of which I take credit for, but most of which she produced. And we're very happy to have Emily with us. As regular listeners know, uh, Jasmine Lim uh, left us last week and is ultimately moving to New York, but she remains a fan and is is listening in, I hope. Uh, She said she would. So, uh, Jasmine, you did a great job last week. We miss you, but we're going to move on anyway. And now over to Emily. Yeah. Hi, Bill and Scott. I think today we will pick up with a couple of comments that you both made last week. Bill, in particular, you said that this warranted a deeper dive on the nexus of climate and trade. That's good timing because last week, I believe on Thursday, the chief rapporteur for the European Parliament published his draft report on the CBAM. For listeners, that's the carbon border adjustment mechanism that the European Union has put forth last year. The rapporteur's draft report makes a number of amendments, including expanding it to cover scope two emissions and a host of other changes. Bill, would you like to say a couple of words about what this broadening of the scope of the CBAM would mean, especially for the United States? Yes, I threatened to do this last week, and I think it's good to carry out the threat, because I think what the uh, this report does, and the name of the member of parliament who did this is uh, uh, Mohamed Shahim, who is a Dutch representative in the European Parliament from the uh, Socialist and Democrats bloc. And rapporteur really means the member of parliament who really is charged with navigating this proposal through the process. So what he says makes a difference. And he wrote a lengthy report that is the product of extensive consultation, uh, largely with other members of parliament. So, you know, I think he has a good idea of, of where people want to go with this. And I think it'll be important for the United States because it may have an impact on, on the debate. When we've written about this, and uh, we're going to be shortly coming out with another paper on on climate. When it came to border adjustment measures, carbon border adjustment measures, known as CBAMs, we seemed to perceive, you know, three possible scenarios, which is, just to be creative, named the the death spiral, the virtuous circle, and, and the big yawn. The death spiral was this debate over border measures devolves into mutual recrimination. Everybody accuses each other of protection, uh, protectionism, uh, sues each other in the WTO, and in various domestic courts, and the whole thing sort of slows down. The virtuous circle is the opposite, really, that, that uh, inspired by the EU, other countries adopt border adjustment measures as well and collectively sort of uh, ratchet up the process of, of promoting uh, climate mitigation and, and uh, helping uh, their own companies both adopt mitigation policies but also discourage them from moving to countries that haven't, which would have just kept the air dirtier. 
Finally, was the big yawn scenario, which was the EU is going to do this and nobody will notice. And we added that one in the process of our research because it became apparent based on some, some work another think tank has done, E3G, that in the short run, the impact of European border adjustment measures on the United States uh, would not be great. The biggest impact that they foresaw would be on Russia, followed by China. But uh, because the CBAM includes only, um, I recall, five different sectors, the U.S. is not a major exporter in those sectors to Europe, and thus probably in the short run would not be affected by what the uh, Commission has proposed. Now, what uh, the Parliament is going to consider, though, and, and what this report recommends, is a number of, of amendments that would change that, and that's why this is important. One, they want to add chemicals, among other things, to the list of covered sectors, and that is a multi-billion dollar export for the United States. So if you add in, uh, add in chemicals, be it eligible for CBAMs, that would have a big impact on us. They also want to cover indirect e- emissions, which will set off a whole, a whole new debate. That includes emissions from electricity, for example, or the, counting the, the energy that, that is consumed in the production of the product and the way it is you know, the way that electricity is produced gets counted in the equation. That will make a difference, too. So I think the effect of this proposal, if it goes through, it is adopted by the parliament, is that it will probably bring an end to the big yawn scenario and point out to Americans, and American companies in particular, that this is something that's going to affect their exports. Uh, this is something that's going to affect trade. And therefore, it's something that we need to take a really close look at. And I think I should stop there and turn it over to Scott. Just an observation, which is once again, Europe is demonstrating its first mover advantage when it comes to regulation. Brussels doesn't produce much beyond regulation. It's kind of like Washington in that respect, where the main output, I mean, you know, sort of sort of distinctive product of the of the city is uh, uh, is a, a new rules of one sort or another. We have our federal register. They have the whole processes for rulemaking that are quite extensive. But despite their industries, whether or not they're at the leading edge, really doesn't matter. Uh, Europe always seems to find a way to stay at the leading edge of rulemaking. So maybe that's good, maybe that's not, but at least it's it puts something in the debate. And I think what, what I'm most encouraged by is this is a trade issue. And trade negotiators, by habit or by practice, tend to be pragmatic people. They're, they're looking for solutions. And I think climate policy can really use a dose of pragmatism, where you get people together who are doing the math, who are calculating risks, benefits, and costs, and who are moving toward estimates that may be the midpoint scenario instead of the worst case scenario. I think a lot of what passes for a debate about climate drifts off into, into sort of screeching about worst case scenarios. My view is that when trade people get involved, they're likely to bring it back to uh, to a much more empirically based conversation, which I think is the only way to get a solution. You've got you've got to get into into numbers that add up and and uh, spreadsheets that 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 square and uh, and a level of empiricism about the benefits and the risks in order to 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 make the rules in the trade space. So I think it's a good move. Part of the 
amendments to the CBAM proposal that Mohammed Shaheem put forth recently is a pretty significant change to how exemptions will be provided uh, by the European Union. Specifically, uh, Shaheem's report suggests that exemptions should only be made available to those countries that have in place a domestic price on carbon. Do you think that that is likely to affect any policy change here in the United States? Will that move the debate forward on, for example, the border carbon adjustment that was put forth earlier this summer? Glad you brought that up because I forgot to mention it. And it would also, I think, help put the big yawn to bed. This has been an important debate and it may influence the U.S. debate here. The U.S. does not have a price on carbon. Our leaders uh, have expressed some skepticism about that. I think for some of them, it's political skepticism. That is a good idea, but unlikely to pass the Congress. I think other people are just not sure that it's the best way to proceed. But that has caused the U.S. administration to raise the question of, can countries that don't have a carbon price nevertheless be exempted from the European CBAM based on equivalent non-pricing measures that they have taken, which would mean regulatory limitations on on emissions primarily. That obviously is, is you know, a hint that uh, the United States might prefer to do it that way and then hopefully get credit from the EU for having done so. What uh, the report uh, from MEP uh, Shahim says is, no, uh, you can't do that. And that uh, if you want the EU to exempt you, and, and the, the, the concept of exemptions, we should say, I should say, makes a lot of sense because the, the point is, you know, if another country is all also engaging in the same kind of climate mitigation policies that Europe is, they shouldn't automatically be penalized via their, their imports into the EU. They should get, you know, the appropriate steps they've taken in their climate policy should be recognized when a CBAM uh, is or is not applied. There's not a lot of debate about that being a good idea. The question then is that people come in and say, well, we ought to be exempt uh, from the, the, the border adjustment measure, which means exempt from the tax that the Europeans will put on us for, you know, any number of reasons. But one is because we're doing equivalent non-pricing things. And if the EU does that, it will probably mean that the United States will, will seek and may be able to obtain uh, an exemption. But if the EU uh, does not do that, it puts us in a much more complicated position and will force the United States, I think, to uh, rethink the whole idea of carbon pricing, which personally I think would, would be a good thing. It, it's hard for me to see how you can address this issue uh, of border adjustment measures without, uh, you know, without having a price on carbon. How you implement that and how you calculate it and what you do with it is there can be different approaches. But if you don't start with having the price in the first place, it seems to me to be very difficult. It turns out, and we had a closed session of experts on this subject earlier this week, and it, it turned out that if you're going to start talking about that, though, uh, it creates all kinds of WTO-related issues. They get very complicated very quickly. You know, supposing you have two countries exporting to the European Union, one of which has a carbon pricing system and it has its own domestic tax on, on carbon for its own producers, and, and one of which does not, what that effectively means is that one country would be exempt from the CBAM and the other country would not, uh, which potentially raises a WTO issue. And to make it even more complicated, what do you do about countries that in fact have adopted both policies? That is, they have regulatory policies 
in place on climate mitigation, but they've also imposed a, a carbon tax domestically. What do you do about them, and uh, as opposed to countries that have only done one of those things? So it creates a, a minefield because the, as we did discuss this last week, as I recall, the fundamental WTO rule at issue is non-discrimination that you have to treat the foreigners the same way you treat yourself, and you have to treat the foreigners alike. And this sets up a process in which that may be very difficult. So it opens up an awful lot of questions if they start granting exemptions on, on any basis. But to get back to the main subject, I think for the U.S., if they don't permit non-price-based exemptions, another wake-up call for us, and it's going to force the administration to... Uh, take this whole thing much more seriously, because if you throw that in along with expanded scope of, of product coverage, you're talking about a real impact on the United States. Well, it's one of those things. It sounds to me like Europe could use some partners in doing this if they want a system that holds up and has enough participants to really make a meaningful impact on the problem they're trying to solve. Uh, although it would be really unusual for Europe's first choice to be something that would uh, make the U.S. a partner rather than a uh, potential victim uh, of, the, uh, of the policy. So we'll see what happens. But uh, I remain uh, skeptical of uh, the immediate erasure of longstanding uh, multilateral trade disciplines like Most Favored Nation and national treatment. They're incredibly valuable to, uh, to almost any trader who's in the trading system. They are ubiquitous, and there's a, there's a good reason that they're prominent. And so moving away from them will, will not be uh, straightforward or uh, trivial to undertake. Well, I've been hearing quite frequently recently, uh, including this morning in a session on climate change and trade, that when we tend to think about or discuss the nexus of climate and trade, that really is code language for the CBAM. In fact, uh, the nexus of climate and trade is much broader than the CBAM. There are a lot of other policies that can be useful in mitigating climate change or sometimes hurtful in the bid to combat climate change. So let's turn now to one of those. This week, Mexico requested a USMCA panel in the ongoing dispute regarding rules of origin. This could potentially affect uh, a new EV core motor factory in Mexico. Scott, how do these rules of origin potentially complicate the bid to decarbonize? Well, it seems to me that the United States has got a has created a conflict here with different policy initiatives that we probably need to sort out rather than than uh, foisting it on our trading partners. The NAFTA originally and now USMCA created uh, essentially a set of rules for production in North America. So, what happens in autos in almost every sector in North America, U.S., Mexico, Canada, is that we make things together and we sell them to each other in the world. And because of the way we make things together and the rules that support that within first NAFTA, now USMCA, they're globally competitive products. So it's a system that works extremely well. It works well in autos. The US has globally competitive companies operating here who use the production networks that were essentially developed to comply with the rules of USMCA. And so, so that, that is actually a good thing because it makes, it makes the products more, more available, it, it, it pleases the consumers, and it, and it keeps the companies competitive with their global counterparts. So that's all good. And, and we've obviously, it's a relatively recent change to the agreement to have USMCA. That was Trump administration initiative. 
now we have a, a Biden administration initiative, which essentially is, is is about sort of buy America or buy buy American Union products with regard to electric vehicles. And there, now there's a couple of things we just probably we we just need to sort out what our policy is. There are large subsidy programs to move consumers to electric vehicles. They're needed because electric vehicles are more expensive for the for basically the same vehicle. So the subsidies, if you really want to do that as a policy matter, you're going to need the subsidies, but you would actually need less subsidies if you made your vehicles as efficiently as possible. And the, the NAFTA slash USMCA is the system for making vehicles efficiently. So looks to me like we've we've got ourselves, uh, you know, we, we've done all this to ourselves. We we want uh, or at least some of Congress. Now, th- th- these bills are not passed yet. So Build Back Better is 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 along a rail siding somewhere piled up with snow around it, and maybe it'll get dug out and, and uh, become law at some point. It's not yet, uh, but that's really what's created the conflict is we want, we want to have subsidies that apply only to both vehicles made in America and additional subsidies to American plants with union representation. At least that's the proposal. Once again, these are, these are only proposals. For me, the better way to think about this is to step back and say, well, what are we trying to do? We're trying to move consumers to electric vehicles. In order to do that, let's make the vehicles as efficient, which is good good for the, both the consumers and and the budget for subsidies. So I think we've got we've got our own policies at cross purpose. This, in my view, is what the Ways and Means Committee exists to deal with. There's a solution in there somewhere that Congress ought to be deliberative about and and find. I don't disagree with that, but I had a, I approached this pro, this question from a completely different point of view, and that was just looking at the details of the particular dispute and the complaint that Mexico and Canada have filed against us. At one level, it's it's just it really is kind of an empirical question, which is, what did the negotiators agree to? And the Mexicans and the Canadians said that uh, you know the, the three countries agreed to one thing, and the Americans say no, they agreed to something different. Uh, one, you would think that you could go back and look at the negotiating record and talk to the people that were in the room and come out with, you know, an answer to that question. Apparently not. The implications of how this com- comes out, though, have a lot of significance, not only for the climate issues that Scott was talking about, but for a lot of the um, administration's uh, federal procurement plans, I think, because I believe what they intend to do uh, over time is more generally, as far as federal procurement is concerned, is the same thing that, that they've tried to do, which is being disputed, the thing they tried to do on autos in Mexico. And the issue is, as I understand it, and I'll do my best to explain it, is basically how you count the content of components and subcomponents. And, you know, the, the NAFTA rules of origin basically are that, that you know, you have to have a certain percent of, of North American content in your car, and the, in this, the number, the amount of the percent for this discussion doesn't it doesn't matter. But the, because the point is not what the percentage is, the point is whether a particular item is you know is is American or well North American or not. So the, then the question comes in, of course, for example, if you're building a transmission, and say you're building your transmission in Mexico, transmissions have got lots of pieces. Uh, and lots of parts in them, at least <laughs> for gasoline-powered automobiles, they do. And uh, where do those parts and components come from? They may come from North America, uh, in which case there's no issue, but they often don't. If you, for example, are a Japanese or European 
auto company assembling in, in uh, Mexico, a lot of your parts and components may be coming from Europe or from Japan. And that become, then the question becomes, how do you count them? Uh, and how you count those parts and components then will determine whether or not your overall product has met the threshold, the content threshold, allowing it to be considered North American for tariff purposes. And the practice of the past, including in NAFTA, but I think in some other cases as well, is that if, for example, you're building a transmission and you've got parts from multiple places, but you know, a majority of those parts, or let's say now 55%, pick your number, 55, 60% of those parts, whatever it is, are North American, then the whole transmission, in this case, gets counted as American, even though it might have 40% foreign parts, because it has a majority, or in this case, 60% North American content, it as a whole counts as 100% North American. So when it goes into the car, you know, that piece of it counts as a North American piece, 100%. That's what the Mexicans and the Canadians think that we agreed to in USMCA. What Ambassador Lighthizer argued, and which Ambassador Tai has continued to argue, is that that's not what they agreed to, uh, and that what the U.S. intends to do, and I guess is doing, is saying that, you know, if that transmission is, let's say, 60% North American and 40% not, when it goes into the car, it counts as only 60%. And as you might imagine, if you're going to count that way, it makes it harder to meet the standard, which means you have to have a lot more North American content built into your car than some of these uh, companies have been have been doing for 20 years. So the debate matters. And it also matters because I think what the administration is contemplating is adopting that kind of a rule for a lot of other parts of the components when it comes to federal procurement. You know, I gave a speech on this just, just yesterday. I mean, this is the Buy American issue. Buy America is a great slogan. And the administration says we want to increase the percentage of, of Buy American, of American products in federal procurement. Well, that's fine, but if you look at the numbers, 96% of federal procurement is already American. So how much more can you squeeze in? You know, And half of the remaining is overseas purchases for overseas use. So there's not a big gap there to be filled. However, the reason this matters is because that 96% is 96% uh, American if you count the old way. You know, if, if you count the parts and components by rolling, rolling them up. If you count uh, Lighthizer's way and the USMCA way, according to the American interpretation, then you get a much lower percentage of current federal procurement that would count. And that will have a significant change on what the federal government ends up buying if they were to put that in place. Now, you know, what they're going to do, it doesn't depend on USMCA. However, you know, how the outcome of this case, though, I think, uh, is going to matter in terms of what the government goes forward uh, doing, partly because, if only because, the Canadians and the Mexicans have vociferously objected to this in the USMCA context. And I don't have any doubt they'll do the same thing if the administration tries to broaden it. At some point, uh, I think Congress ought to be concerned that if you follow this line too far, you will have wonderful targets for Buy America or locally produced vehicles and there will be no vehicles produced under that standard. In other words, you've, you've made it so difficult to, to qualify for the preference, whatever that might be, that it, it doesn't happen. So you can, you can be your own worst enemy in, in these things 
if you try to push it too far. That reminds me, I can't go into a lot of detail because this was kind of an off-the-record conversation, but I had a very interesting conversation uh, a while back with someone in the administration just trying to figure out, because we had done a study on it in advance, trying to figure out what the effect of these rules had been on automobile manufacturing in Mexico and, uh, and the U.S. and Canada. And it's really too soon to say, but the one comment that was made that intrigued me was that the government has noticed a decline in the number of, I guess you would call them certification requests, number of companies coming in and asking that their automobile be certified as uh, meeting the content standard. What that implies, and I said this is really too early to say, but what that probably implies is that because the tariff is only 2.5%, car companies are figuring out, rather than try to meet all these standards, it's just simply easy to pay, easier to pay the tariff. Which means that the Trump administration's objective of increasing domestic content may not be met. All right, thank you. Let's move on to another easy topic at the nexus of trade and climate, which is agriculture. The UN Food Price Index report that recently came out showed that on average food prices increased over 28%. Uh, in 2020, which is pretty alarming. There is a movement on particularly the environmentalist left that says, well, let's just all eat more local food. Let's depend on our local uh, community garden and we can all be fed that way. Uh, Something tells me that there might be a little bit more to that story. And I'm wondering what role trade can play in helping stabilize, first of all, the food supply and second of all, food prices. Well, look, this is uh, first and foremost uh, an an energy uh, problem and not necessarily a trade problem, at least as a first order. What's happened is uh, when you compare 2021 versus the prior year, crude oil is up 55%. Natural gas is up 47% in price. Natural gas is important because it is a major input into the production of nitrogen-based fertilizers. That is the key variable. So high natural gas prices, we'll think of high energy prices as anytime you want to produce something or move something, you have to use energy to do that. And uh, farm products use energy in both production and transportation. But there's a, even a precursor step is one of the key ingredients for which the demand is pretty inelastic, uh, these nitrogen fertilizers. That's how you get your crop yields where you need them, are much more expensive this year than last year, principally because of the prominence of natural gas as a cost element and the fact that natural gas is roughly 50% more expensive. Uh, The problem is a little worse in Europe, by the way, than it is here because some of the uh, climate geniuses in Europe decided to shut down nuclear power plants right before the winter got really bad, which spiked natural gas prices, as well as coal prices. By the way, coal uh, you know coal, environmentalists love it. Uh, it's up 160% versus a year ago. The energy costs are translating into higher production costs, and then the commodity prices are up. So corn's up 23%, wheat's up 20%. That affects the costs to food processors down the line. So I think that's the principal no, uh, notion that's going on. Now, trade's very important. We actually have relatively balanced trade in agricultural goods in the United States. And there's a lot of things we import, which is, which is good for the consumer in terms of choice and keeps products on the shelf. I like it when consumers have lots of choice. Farmers markets are great things and localizing production may, may be something that's attractive to consumers. 
The problem with, with it as a solution to energy and climate is it works on the wrong side of the problem. In agriculture, roughly 80% of the energy is used in production and less than 20% in transportation. The reason food comes a long distance is production is where the leverage is in efficiency. You're looking for leverage in the wrong place when you want to localize. I hadn't thought about that. That's, an, that's really interesting. I think there's still, you are saving on energy if you, uh, if you buy local. You know, if you, if you go to a farmer's market and somebody's, you know, giving, showing you the produce, selling the produce that they grew out of their garden or out of their farm, is that more energy efficient than, you know, a large lettuce producer in California? I, I don't know the answer. Generally, yes. I mean, that's, that's why, you know, sort of big food exists. That's why mass agricultural production actually is the most efficient way to do it. It, it gets you the high yields and, and, and scale economies get you a better value. And that's why prices have, are generally affordable versus that uh, $9 heirloom tomato at the local farmer's market. Jokes aside, the cost pressures are real. There's real inflation going on. It's rooted in energy costs, which are a vitally important input to farm products. And uh, unless we want to go back and, uh, and build some pipelines and frack and do all the things that... Uh, that uh, the green lobby tends not to like to do, we're going to have high food prices. I would just add, in this area, the Washington area, I think it, there are also labor issues. Uh, we've had a COVID surge. There's a lot of people staying home because they're infected. You're right, Bill. And it, it, this is the same supply chain problem that's affecting food processing in a lot of places, which is people are sick or, or not available to work. There are labor shortages. It's essentially the services side, not necessarily a trade, a trade problem per se, but Bill, you're exactly right to point out that that's there, there are plants running understaffed, which, which has contributes to shortages. What I, what has baffled me is that at least here, the, the shortages don't seem to be entirely across the board. Just, I went to the store this morning, as it turns out, uh, because my wife had gone to, uh, to Giant, one of the large companies in this area, a couple of days ago and discovered empty shelves for a lot of things she wanted and she wants to make some soup. Uh, so I was assigned to find uh, split peas, carrots and barley. Well, I went to Balducci's, which is, you know, kind of a, a boutique thing uh, because it's uh, it's nearby and convenient. Um, and I did very well. I got all three. Different stores have different uh, advantages, but it does seem to be a um, kind of a labor and distribution issue that might be peculiar to particular chains. And uh, the bigger ones, I think, may have a little bit more difficulty adjusting because they're locked into distribution patterns that are not easy for them to, to change. And the smaller ones may have more flexibility. It underscores the importance of getting people back to work, getting the economy opened up to stop treating the global economy like it's a light switch that we can stop when we feel like it and restart. Uh, so more to come. Well, that leaves plenty of food for thought. Thanks for tuning into our deep dive on the nexus of climate and trade and stay tuned for next week's episode. If you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it.
You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.